Good morning. We are so delighted to have you joining with us. We continue our conversation on the book of Ephesians, this wonderful excursus on ecclesiology. Say that three times very quickly. That Paul writes to a church that is experiencing some tensions as to how to understand the gospel. Today, and Joey and I unravel the mystery of the gospel, but before we do that, let's go ahead and have a word of prayer. God, we want to thank you so much for your blessings, for your love, your care for us. We simply would pray that amidst this wonderful camp seating season, that you will accompany us, not only in our discussions here, but in our exploration of the book of Revelation, in the concerts and the music, and also, Lord, obviously, for those of us who are in this community, in our wonderful, wonderful night of socializing and games. We pray that your spirit dwell mightily upon us today and always. Amen. Joey, welcome back. How was your much, much, much deserved weekend off uh, for birthday? By the way, happy birth, happy belated birthday, I guess I should say. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was fun. Uh, I was up at the Korean camp meeting speaking for the adult group there, and um, it just was a refreshing mm. time reconnecting with friends, some people that I had gone to college with, and... Yeah, it was, a, and just walking through my old haunts at um, Pacific Union College, mm-hmm. um, eating at some of the restaurants that we used to eat in the past, just, it was a great time. Very yeah. cool. Now, for those of us who don't know that much of geography, there's two there's two camp meeting places up in Northern California. There's Soquel and there's Leone Meadows. Yeah. You were at? I was actually at the Korean camp meeting, which is at, was at Pacific Union College. So me. neither Soquel nor Leone Meadows. <laughs> yeah. You were at the Korean camp. How was that? Were you? Did you speak in Korean? No, I spoke in English. <laughs> okay, well, you was at a Korean camp meeting in Pacific Union College speaking English. So you all make of that what you will. We are so glad you're back. Yeah, I, I'm really glad to be back. Um, but when I was up there, I met some some people who watched the mm. South School, said hi to, to some of them, and it was... It was nice to connect with some of our, some of you who connect from afar. Yeah, well, if you were part of that Korean camp meeting in English in Pacific Union College, we are so thankful that you are watching, and hopefully you sent Joey back with some treats. Uh, one of our former colleagues here, Pastor Jonathan, was up there as well, yeah. and we chatted a bit, and he was just mesmerized by the food that the food offerings that they had up there. So there's yeah. that. <laughs> yeah, it was it was really good food that we had, and it was nice to reconnect with Jonathan. We actually played in a basketball tournament, together, mm. um, and our team won. I mean, I didn't really contribute to that, but Jonathan definitely right. did. Right. We all know who, <laughs> we all know who the Hooper is in, in that, or was when we had him on staff. So, Joey, we talk about the mystery of the gospel today as Paul continues to unravel uh, this letter uh, that is, I just, I think, a wonderful, wonderful systematic approach to ecclesiology. How do we do life together in practical ways? And today we focus on chapter three, uh, which I think is just a wonderful, wonderful way of introducing us to this mystery of the gospel, right? Because chapter three is all about who is included in this invitation to partake of the good news that Jesus came, died, but above all, he's risen. Yeah. This chapter, to me, epitomizes Paul's style, right? Mm-hmm. Because he has this, these, these random wanderings 
um, as he speaks. It's almost like he starts saying something and then he remembers something really important that he still wants to say. And so he says that and then he comes back to his main point at the end. And that's exactly what happens here in chapter three. But that that wonderful excursus, as we say, is actually is actually some of the most beautiful writing mm. that he does. And he does that even like in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, that excursion that he takes into love is one of the most beautiful mm-hmm. passages in all of scripture. And yet it's it's sort of a wandering mm. off his main point, but something that he definitely needed to get off his heart. And the same thing is true mm. here. Yeah. The mystery of the gospel. Yeah, you're absolutely right with that writing style. And for those of us who kind of are used to hypotheses, no, well, I should say uh, thesis, hypothesis, and then you prove or, do, or you have your antithesis and then you continue creating a very Socratic method of kind of sharing information. Paul isn't doing no. a Socratic excursus on the gospel. Paul is. And I was just kind of went back to my uh, to my undergrad studies this week. And I read this book by Cicero, which is it's it's the title is simply on rhetoric and it's kind of if you if you're used to how the Greeks and the Romans used to construct this argument before uh, Socrates or the alternative to Socrates, it was kind of this this really really tightly woven uh, idea, concept or argument, uh, but the thread consisted of many ideas, and so. Uh, Cicero on rhetoric says that if an argument is to be persuasive, it ought to leave you dizzy. Mm-hmm. And that's a little bit of, a, of what Paul does when he <laughs> argues, right? That's he true. starts with a very clear point, And then we go through what we call in English, all these different bunny trails. Mm-hmm. But then we come back to the same point. And so it's important to have kind of that clear in our mind. What is the primary argument uh, that Paul is going to try to make? Because that argument is going to, I I should say, recalibrate us maybe through all the bunny trails that that he goes on in uh, in this letter. Yeah. And that's a great point because what he says in chapter three, I mean, he starts it for this reason. So it is connected to what he Mm -hmm. ended in chapter two Mm -hmm. on, right? And of course, when Paul was writing the letters, he didn't have chapters, right? It was right. just one one letter. But it really is focused on what you introduced in the beginning, the idea that Gentiles are welcome mm-hmm. into, into, this, into the community of God, that they are part of the temple mm-hmm. of, of, of God. And so, yeah, I'm excited to dive in that, into that mm-hmm. with you. And I think that's that's a wonderful place to start, right? Because he starts by introducing this clause, which we know in Greek is a very common clause. And it's a clause that ought to push you to see back, right? So for this reason, and what's what's the hypothesis that Paul is trying to lay out in chapter two? Well, he is saying that because of the gospel, because of the Jesus events, mm-hmm. you no longer have foreigners. Mm-hmm. You no longer have aliens or strangers. What you have is citizens of of the kingdom, member of the kingdom, members of the body, uh, soldiers in the army. Whatever analogy, um, Paul has a bunch. Um, whatever analogy you want to connect with that. And so th- I think the question, if you're if you're talking to a skilled rhetorician, would be, okay, so you've laid out this this really, really broad statement. You're no longer citizens or foreigners. Can you bat can you base that 
uh, or can you put some flesh on that argument? And so chapter three, as you noted, is kind of this flesh that starts that Paul starts to graft upon the argument that we no longer have foreigners or strangers, that we have members, and this is one of Paul's favorite analogies in the book of Ephesians, members of a household. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I find it also fascinating that Paul actually, in his wandering, the first bunny trail that he takes as he adds that flesh, is he starts talking about himself mm-hmm. first. It's almost like he needs to, again, and I, you see this a lot more in his earlier writings, but you see this idea that Paul almost needs to establish his credibility, mm-hmm. right? And saying, this is what I was called mm-hmm. for. And I am called, like verse two, surely you have heard uh, about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. That is the mystery made known to me by revelation, mm-hmm. as I have already written briefly, mm-hmm. right? This idea that this is this is my mission. This mm-hmm. is what I've been called to, to make this mystery known. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And when you, this is just really important when you, whenever you encounter Pauline writings or the corpus of Pauline writings, he's going to use this word a lot, right? Mystery, which if you know Greek, you know what that, what that word is. It's mysterium, right? And it's kind of this interchangeable thing that he uses for the gospel. So for Paul, this idea of mysterium is the gospel. And a mystery, at least in the mind of Paul's uh, readers, is something that cannot be discovered or uncovered mm-hmm. without some external help. Mm-hmm. And so what Paul is saying is, I am going to be your guide through this uncovering or fleshing out, as we were saying before, yeah. of what the gospel is. And the question then is, okay, well, what is the gospel? And Paul says, I think, as you wonderfully said, it's a bunny trail but it's not, mm-hmm. right? Paul says, I am a prisoner for your sake, for the sake of the Gentiles. So in other words, he's saying, I am experiencing hardship for your sake. And if that sounds counterintuitive, let me introduce you to the mystery that is the gospel. And so it is a bunny trail, but then it's also connected to Paul's primary idea, which is, again, the mystery is that in a highly separated and hierarchical society, there are no foreigners, there are no strangers. Yeah, and as you brought it out again, all these disparate threads that somehow weave together mm-hmm. to make his point when when you get to the end. I, I love that. Um, and... And in, in this, when he talks about how he's, like you said, that he was, he claims to be the one to reveal, the guy to reveal the mystery. One thing that struck me as I was reading that was, um, I don't know if other people get the sense, but for me, it was almost like, is Paul being a little bit cocky here? Mm. Because in verse four, it says, um, in reading this, then you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ. Verse five which was not made known to people in other generations as it has now been revealed by the spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. He's like, he's, it seems like he's saying mm-hmm. the people that preceded us, all of these prophets, mm-hmm. all these, they, they didn't know this. God didn't reveal it to them, right. but he revealed it to me, me as, as in these current mm. apostles and prophets. Mm. I don't know. I don't know how I would ever feel about claiming to be a prophet mm. or an apostle, but Paul doesn't seem to shy away mm-hmm. from saying, no, I am a prophet. Mm-hmm. I am an apostle of God and God has revealed this mm-hmm. mystery. And there is a confidence there. 
that seems to almost contradict what he says later on about the fact that he's the least, mm-hmm. right? And that it is only by grace that he is called to be a prophet mm-hmm. and apostle. So I, I get that sense of cockiness in the beginning, but then later on, it seems like he clarifies that and mm-hmm. says, well, I know that it's not because mm-hmm. I'm such an advanced person that I've been called to this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, and I think, and I was thinking about this as uh, as we were reading this lesson today. Um, I think we have to understand kind of the framework for which uh, or which directed relationships in the Roman world, mm. right? So you had all these different types of relationships. Uh, Rome was a very relationally laden society mm-hmm. in which you could have, for example, the relationship between a father and uh, his children or a father and uh, or a husband and his wife. And Paul's going to allude to that later on in this in this very same epistle with uh, the house code or the house rules um, that that he will uh, use to to kind of, again, give us an analogy of how we are members of the same household. So there was that relationship. Then there's a relationship between slave and master. And Paul, again, is going to use that relational framework later on to give us something. But probably the most common relationship of the of them all was the relationship between a patron and somebody who was re- uh, receiving or benefiting from that patronage. Mm. And in this case, it was the recipient of uh, the benefits. It was their responsibility to go and to engage the patron, to the patron, to moderate uh, and to ensure that the relationship was healthy. It was their rela- It was their responsibility to in- to also ensure that the patron's expectations were being met. And so it was a re- it was the most common relationship of them all, but the weight uh, that uh, needed to be borne by the person in the relationship was always the beneficiary uh, making sure or checking in with the patron. I think here what Paul, Paul is doing is he's taking that framework, and again, as he often does, he's flipping that on his head, and he says, look, I know you know about patron uh, about patron and beneficiary relationships, um, and I know you think that you are tasked with ensuring that this relationship is healthy. Well, let me tell you about the mystery of the gospel. It has put me in chains. I am actually an heir with Israel. Mm-hmm. Um, and Paul, let's make it, let's remember clearly, Paul never shies away from Israel's position of privilege in the economy of God's of God's narrative. Um, so he talks about that a little bit. And then he says, and furthermore, I'm not only a prisoner for you, I'm not only uh, an Israelite, but I'm also a priest and a prophet and an apostle. Mm-hmm. And yet I am going to go out and ensure that our relationship continues to function because that is what the mystery of the gospel compels me to do. Wow. Wow. So that he he's using the, the, the terminologies of the the different relationships in Roman in Roman society, but at the same time saying that um, those structures, he's redefining mm-hmm. them in a way that it doesn't create separation. Mm-hmm. It actually creates mm-hmm. connection mm-hmm. between the two. That's a really good way of putting it. And that that tracks, right, Joey? Because yeah. he does that with every other uh, 
relationship that you have through the epistle. Yeah, yeah. I mean, definitely for them, the way that he's going to describe mm -hmm. the relationship between husband and wife, mm -hmm. the relationship between father and child and slave and master mm -hmm. would have been very revolutionary mm -hmm. during that time. It still is revolutionary it's today. Still, <laughs> it's still. Like, I, we read this and we, we say, is the gospel, and this is kind of what I was coming back to and coming back to, because again, um, and we've talked about this for the past couple of weeks, Ephesians is a letter on ecclesiology. Yeah. And so it's it's a letter more than I think any other letter in the New Testament mm -hmm. is intended to re be read in the context of a community of faith. Mm -hmm. And then the question is, is this mystery of the gospel, once it is discovered, once it is understood, is it enough to alter the relationships that you have in a community of faith that is yeah. doing life together in such a radical way. That's, I think, the challenge that the Paul lays out before us in a very practical way. Wow. Yeah. Because at the heart of the gospel, according to Paul, seems to be this idea of connectedness and um, reversing the separation mm -hmm. that was created by mm -hmm. sin, right? We've talked about before how in Genesis, uh, once sin happens, there's separation that mm -hmm. happens, separation between man and and wife, separation between man and God, separation between humans and humankind and all of all of the environment, right? Mm -hmm. There is this separation that happens. But in verse six, he writes, this mystery, so the mystery of the gospel is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together mm. with Israel, members together of one body mm. and shares together in the promise mm. in Christ Jesus. I mm. love how in this mm. translation together is repeated over and mm -hmm. over. It's it's like you are not separate entity. It's, it's as as if Paul is saying, I know there's this in your mind, this category of Gentile and Jew, but really you are now part of one household, mm. which I know that you're going to bring in later this this terminology, this connection between the 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 connection that he makes between uh, the wordplay he does between father and um, family, mm -hmm. right? That 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 the, the Greek word is an echo of each other, mm -hmm. right? Pater is father, and um, the, this this that 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 word is the source of the word for family mm -hmm. as well, right? This this echo that happens, Paul is saying, you are now part of the family mm -hmm. that God of God that bears the name, the name of God. Yeah, Joey, that is so beautiful, and I think. You've just, again, uh, so insightfully kind of teased out uh, Paul just taking, as we were saying before, these relationships and flipping them on the head. Yeah. So you talk about the patron and the, and the beneficiary, but now he's talking about this idea of heirs mm. and this idea of togetherness as it, as it connects to an heir is completely outside of the frame of reference of the people that he's reading, mm -hmm. right? One heir. You would have one heir to the exclusion of any other person wow. that kind of can come and make a claim. Yeah. The patrifamilias, the head of the family, yeah. the father of the family, would choose an heir. And that heir, the, the whole point of that was to ensure that there was no, uh, no other person that could then rise up and claim for himself or herself this day. Well, it was only for himself, uh, the status of heirs. And then Paul says, now here's the mystery. Mm. The mystery is that you Gentiles, though you have, forget about any familial claim, you have no ethnic claim mm. to the gospel. You are now co-heirs with 
uh, the Jews, and you are heirs together. And I think what 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 really stood out uh, stood out to me as I was reading this is this idea that in a world that is always defined by scarcity, the, the gospel is always big enough to say one more, one more, one more. And that would have been something really, really interesting to hear, I think, if you're hearing it for the first time, particularly if you're hearing it for the first time as somebody that is um, curious about Israel's Israel's faith tradition. Yeah, that, that mentality of uh, prosperity and pro- um rather than that mentality of scarcity, mm-hmm. right? That that I have to be in competition with everyone else because there's not enough to go around. God is saying there's room enough for everyone and there's resources enough mm-hmm. for everyone. Um, and so you're not you're in competition to, with each other anymore. You are now in cooperation with one mm-hmm. another as a part of the family. And it's almost like God, like Paul is ripping off the labels mm-hmm. that we carry and giving us a new mm-hmm. label. Right? That's a really good way of defining it, yes. Yeah, he takes off the label of Gentile and Jew. And later on, he's going to say things like this. And uh, he says this in other epistles that there, in Christ, there is no mm-hmm. Jew. There is no Gentile, right? There is no master. There is no slave. That we are all one part of the family of God. And that, that sense of unity and oneness and equality, mm. is, it seems like for Paul, that's at the heart of the gospel message. Am I getting that correct? I think that's I think that is not just the heart that is the mystery. Because for human beings the ten, the temptation and tendency is not to rip labels. Mm-hmm. It is to designate labels. And I was thinking about this as I read Elaine Pagels has a a book uh, a recent book, Elaine Pagels who uh, teaches at Yale Divinity School, I believe now, uh, has a book on it's the gospel of Thomas, but more than just uh, the gospel, what she's looking at is how both the canon and uh, the Orthodox Christians or the members of the mainline Christian uh, movement uh, were defined throughout, um, she looks at the first 300 years of, um, of Christian history. And what just kept popping up was that people, whether it's theologians or bishops or pastors, um, they kept creating these labels because labels were really helpful in in, in defining who thought like me and who thought differently. And um, I think that I think the thought in the idea of that laudable as it is ended up, I think, creating a lot of division and schisms for the church. Whereas probably if if we would have been a bit more open-minded in our definition of what orthodoxy is and our resilience for for conversation with maybe other ideas, uh, I think the church could have have maybe sidestepped some really big controversies. What I find fascinating is that Paul starts, as you say, ripping off labels. And then he says, here's the mystery. The mystery is it's big enough. And then he says, the mystery is entrusted to the church. Mm-hmm. Um, if, if if you read here, verse 10, his intent, meaning uh, Christ's intent, was that now through the church, 
the manifold wisdom of God should be known to the should be made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly realms. Mm. Paul is saying that what it means to be an heir is that now you are entrusted with this great mystery. And what I find tragic, perhaps, is that the church often in its zeal to safeguard the mystery has done exactly the opposite of what Paul is attempting to do here, which is rip off labels. Wow. Yeah. And that seems to be such a human instinct. I remember reading, there's a book called Disunity in Christ. Mm-hmm. And um, the author, she, she, and I'll have to check my references, but she quotes a study that we humans, we have this tendency to put on labels as a way of organizing information, mm-hmm. right? In psychology, they have a term called schemas, where um, a schema is just a construct that we make to try to define the world around us. Like when we're born, um, we see a four-legged animal and somebody tells us that's a dog. So we think, okay, a dog is something that walks on four legs as opposed to people who walk on two legs. And then we'll see a horse and then we'll say dog, right? Like little kids will say that dog. And you're like, no, no, that's not a dog. That's a horse because it's taller and it neighs, right? And so you you think, okay, so a horse is something that is taller than a dog that neighs. And as we get older, we, we, def- we, we clarify and define mm-hmm. these schemas more and more exactly, right? Precisely. So that's, that's an instinct that's sort of built into us. And it makes it easier for us when we put people in those boxes as well. We say, well, this person is this type of person. Mm-hmm. They are a conservative. Mm-hmm. They are a Republican. They are um, Hispanic. They are um, Korean American. Whatever the, the boxes are, we it helps us to organize people in those kinds of boxes. Mm-hmm. It's helpful as far as information, but it's not helpful when it comes to relationship. Mm-hmm. Because when we put people in those boxes, we make assumptions about, about them by placing those labels. And instead of seeing people as individuals we see them as a category Mm. and it seems like what paul is saying is no longer are you a part of a category Mm. you are individuals children of god Mm. and just like you would not say okay um because of my category of fathers i'm going to think of my father as being exactly like every other father out there no i know my father i know my dad and because of that he he is not just the category of father. He is so much more than that. Mm. He is the person that I love. And hopefully in the, the family of God, we can do that for mm. each other. That is, I think, oh, that's such a helpful way of looking at the argument that, that Paul is making for the church. I think the problem is that very early on, as the church attempted to define the world around it, it did so in terms of information and to the, well, to the sacrifice, actually, of relationships. Mm. So one of the most famous schisms that the early church faced is with, you know, very famous church father um, who um, taught uh, two brilliant uh, other uh, patristic fathers, Polycarp and Origen, Irenaeus of Lyon. And Irenaeus had a a real, real problem. It was a pickle. 
that he was trying to, to resolve. And that was Matthew, Mark, and Luke uh, seem to say that Jesus is a lot of things, but they stop short of saying that Jesus is divine. Hmm. John, I think, is the gospel, and we still believe that. We still say that and quote that uh, easily. And, and uh, we say, well, Jesus is the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. Um, so Irenaeus, in his attempt to respond uh, to some other readings of, of Jesus's uh, nature, decides to exclude a vast, vast group of, I've, all I've read, uh, faithful, uh, loving, caring Christians, because they were, they were asking questions about Jesus's nature. And so because the onus was placed on information, um, a whole, a whole litany of issues followed from who could extend communion to who was welcome in the church, mm. to what, which priests could afford it, to which, uh, where you could go or which, uh, what services led by which bishops you could attend. And that created a lot of confusing confusion and a lot of pain for the, for the early church. That's, that's not what Paul is doing here. Now, I understand that for Arrhenius, the, the, the goal was to protect the divinity of Christ, which is a laudable goal. It's a, it's a goal which I think you and I would agree with. But notice that Paul doesn't privilege information. Um, as Paul continues saying, he says, in him, speaking of Christ, verse 12, through faith we may approach God with freedom and confidence. It's the fact that we are the heirs of this mystery ought to allow us freedom and confidence. And what struck me as I read this week is that these terms are relationally laden. They're not informational. Mm -hmm. And so perhaps it would do the church well to, to start defining those schemas that you were talking about in terms of relationships instead of, inter uh, instead of informationally. But that is much harder to, I mean, much easier to say than to actually do, mm -hmm. right? I mean, right now we don't have any problems with Gentiles because we are Gentiles. Right. So we don't struggle with what they struggled with. But I'm just thinking, like, what would be our equivalent? What would be our equivalent of the lines that we draw mm -hmm. and say these people, they should be excluded mm -hmm. or they are lesser than, mm -hmm. right? Um, because... This isn't radical for us, but for them, it was. I mean, this must have made them very uncomfortable. What do you mean that I, I always, always grew up thinking that, you know, we as a Jewish people are chosen by God. We're special. Mm -hmm. We're, we're, mm -hmm. um, and yes, okay, Gentiles are welcome in, but they're only welcome in because of us. And mm -hmm. I, it, for Paul to be saying that everything is the same, right? That you are members together of one body, shares together in the promise in Christ Jesus, right? He he's saying that all of these things, he we have access to the same riches in Christ. We have access to the same strength and understanding. Like all of these things are equal. What does that mean? And that that must have been a a challenge for them, to to say that. Well, then, does that mean that being a Jew counts for nothing? That's a really good question. Um, I think you have to under you have to you have to go back to answer that question, right? We have to go back to chapter two. Yeah. And the main argument that he's making in chapter two is that there's a wall of hostility. Mm. 
It's not just that we're going to accept you into church, Mr. Gentile, Miss Gentile. It's that we are in open warfare. There's so many issues that we as Jews have with you as Gentiles mm. that there is hostility. Yes. And so it's not just an issue of tolerance. And I think that's what we often forget because, as you're right, we have... We have kind of this sanitized picture that distance in many, many years, and now the Christian movement being a primary, predominantly a Gentile movement, it gives us some, some separation and it makes the text more sanitized. So I think to answer your question, we would have to go back and say, which people, what group of people in our current society does the, does the church, whether it's Adventist or Christian, however you want to categorize that, what group of people do we have an open, do we have open hostility with? Mm -hmm. And then, because you might say, well, 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 okay, we have, uh, you know, the Catholics can, can come in. If you're, if you're a Protestant or an Adventist, you say the Catholics can come in so long as they, as they worship on the right day, right? We're going to tolerate them in if they adopt our practices. But, and I have this underlined in my Bible at home. Ephesians 2, 14 and 15, the key to understand this whole relationship. Mm. For he himself, speaking of Christ, is our peace, who has made the two one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. So again, not just tolerance, open warfare. How has he done it? <laughs> you guys aren't going to like this at home. Oh, man. By setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. I'm not going to say that the law and the commandments are not important. You deal with Paul. Paul is saying that it's not just tolerance. It is overlooking some of these things that you have as standards and that we have as standards because we say our relationship within Christ with you wow. matters more. And so it's not just a question of today who disagrees with us. It's a question of who disagrees with us to the degree that now we have to set up, set aside some of our standards to seek sisterhood and brotherhood fellowship with them. That's really difficult for the, again, we say, well, they had to set aside circumcision or they were okay. You can come and um, you're still figuring out you have your altar at home, but you can come and you can figure that, that stuff out. For us, that there's there's 2,000 years of history that sanitize that. But as I think you're rightly saying, this would have been very uncomfortable because it required the sacrifice of some of our standards for the benefit of relationships. Wow. And that sounds good, right? That sounds really good in that I'm willing to, to sacrifice some of my standards. But what does that mean? Does that mean that it's a free-for-all? Like... Um, um, you can just come in and do whatever you want and we don't have stand like, what does that mean that we set aside standards? Like that's a struggle. It right? is. It's a complete struggle. And the reality is, I don't think we know, because if we did know this issue doesn't come up after he writes Ephesians, but this issue comes up practically in every single church mm. that Paul writes to. For the Galatians, it's circumcision. For the Corinthians, it depends if you're 1 Corinthians or 2 Corinthians. The issue is um, the, the issue is going to be money and trust, or the issue is going to be uh, complete and total debauchery. 
Paul continues writing about this because that idea of how do we set how, how do we maintain our commitment to live for Christ, which definitely implies some standards, yeah. with the, with the idea that. For the sake of fellowship, those standards need to be put aside and in some moments. When, how, and where. And I think if Paul were still alive, he'd still be writing to us today. He'd still be saying, look, for you in, in Loma Linda, that means this. For you living in, uh, in Northern California, going to camp meeting in PUC, that means this. We have to be humble and say, we don't know. Um, what I do know is I have to be willing to set aside things that make to to take me to a point that makes me uncomfortable. That's I was and I was wrestling with this whole week. Like, what does that mean? What does it mean to set aside my standards? Well, I think at bare minimum, it means admitting some people that are with some behaviors that make me uncomfortable. And that might look different. Uh, in Loma Linda than it does in PUC, just like it looked different in Ephesus and in Corinth. Yeah. And that really is at the heart of the Adventist message, right? This idea that there is no creed, mm -hmm. right? We've said that, and that was, that was said from the very beginning, and we still say it now. We at least give lip service to it now, that we don't have a creed within the Adventist. There is no um, minimum... Um, a set of beliefs that you have to ascribe mm -hmm. to to be a part of the community right. of faith, right? The only creed is the Bible and the Bible mm -hmm. alone. And if somebody interprets the Bible together, we don't exclude them. We engage with them mm -hmm. and converse with them and learn together. I mean, that is at the heart of it. That's why they had Bible conferences mm -hmm. with people who believed who believed that Jesus wasn't God and people who did believe mm -hmm. Jesus was God and they were willing to mm -hmm. still be in fellowship with each other and have conversations. It almost feels like now it would feel like, oh, if someone doesn't believe Jesus is God, that's basic. I mean, that seems like a basic Christian tenet. And yet in early Adventism, they had mm. lots of conversations. Mm -hmm. They not just direct conversations. They wrote articles back mm -hmm. and forth in the review, right, about these things that that we are willing to have conversations and be in communion with people who see things and believe things differently than we do and even behave differently or practice Christianity mm. differently than we do. That, that that does seem to be part of what Paul is saying. The other thing that you said, I think that needs to be highlighted is Paul is not saying by, by saying this, uh, by setting aside in his flesh, the law with its commands and regulations, he is not saying that there is no role for the law, right? Right. That it's that the law is no longer is negated and mm -hmm. is no longer good. I mean, we've we've talked about this before. Just because the law is not the path towards salvation doesn't mean there is no benefit right. to God's law. Because as we've pointed out, the law actually helps to define what love looks mm -hmm. like, and love is the principle that undergirds all of God's kingdom. Right. So we're not setting that aside, but at the same time, if love is the key, then relationship and relational connection between people is really um is is at the heart of the law and if how we interpret the law and practice the law actually breaks relationships mm. and fractures abilities to to be together that does mean that maybe we're interpreting the mm. law a little bit incorrectly yeah right 
Yeah, I think what you said that that and I think Paul would wholeheartedly assent with is that keeping the law, whatever that might be, and for them it was it was very clear. It was Sabbath. It was circumcision. It was uh, the sacrificial system, at least for for the Jews, for the Christian community. It was no idols, um, no eating food offered to idols. I think what Paul is trying to say is those things are good. They're positive. Um, but those things, my keeping the law and you're not keeping the law, that is not a precursor to relationship. Mm. It's not saying that the law is not important. Mm. It is saying that the fact that Christ died for you supersedes that in that it gives me at least a connection to you, the fact that we are in Christ's siblings. And even if we understand the ramifications of that differently, there is still this, this desire to connect. What I find really tragic about Adventism is that the Adventist Church of the 1860s through the 1900s uh, to the early 1900s was much more diverse and much more tolerant in its capacity to maybe withstand the tension that comes from having these conversations that are disparate and diverse. We had people within the church that were Arians. We had people that in the church that believed that Christ was fully divine. We had people in the church that believed that it that you were saved through grace plus the observance of the law. We had people that believed you were saved through the righteousness of Christ. You had people in the church who believed you ought to keep slaves. You had people in the church who believed you shouldn't have slaves. You had people who believed in the Sabbath. You had people in the early Millerite movement that didn't believe in the Sabbath. You had people who believed that the Sabbath started at 12 from midnight to midnight. You had other people who believed it was from morning to, to, to the next morning. And the church somehow through the pages of the Review and Herald allowed for those ideas and those conversations to have their place. I fear now, though, that in Adventism, what is happening is in, the, in an attempt to maintain our denomination clear and pure, and I hear a lot of talk on purity. We gave a shout out to our brothers and sisters on Fulcrum uh, last week um, in, uh, in a, an attempt to deal with purity, we don't have tolerance for divergent ideas. Mm -hmm. And in an attempt to our, we gave a shout out to our Adventist today and Spectrum crowd, in an attempt to be in an attempt to be tolerant, we have no standards. Mm -hmm. And I think either of those positions leads you to a place where you're not engaging thoughtfully people that have different worldviews. So my question would be. Who in your church, who in our church, do we have a hostile relationship with? Who do we need to invite to the table and to simply be tolerant enough to listen? Uh, the bare minimum that a good Adventist ought to do is to sit down and listen thoughtfully. And if we're not ready to listen thoughtfully, perhaps we shouldn't say anything. Wow. Because the truth is, it's much easier to demonize someone mm -hmm. and argue with them than it is to reconcile with them. Mm -hmm. And yet the ministry we're called to is not the ministry of proving people wrong, but the ministry of reconciliation. Mm -hmm. That's what Paul is making. That's Paul's primary point. So take any issue. 
What would it look like to take somebody that has different views on the role of women and to say, let's talk about that with the basic assumption that you are a Bible-believing, Christ-following Christian. With that assumption, let's sit down and listen to you. Um, that might not be, that might not ruffle enough feathers here in Loma Linda, um, because we we kind of are pretty pretty monolithic in our approach to that. But what about when it comes when it comes to human sexuality? Mm-hmm. Without laying out our cards on the table, what if we simply said, uh, we know there's there's a myriad of positions in the church. Let's sit down and thoughtfully engage and listen with one another mm-hmm. and see how at the end of the conversation we can do what the early Adventists did, which is we're going to continue studying and talking about this through the pages of of the Review and Herald. That, I think, is committing ourselves to the work of reconciliation. That, I think, is doing exactly what, um, what Paul is talking about here in Ephesians. Because the real mystery of the gospel, when you really look at it, if you were a first century Roman, you would go and you would see and you would stand outside of the Christian house of worship, and you would say, what in the world is keeping all of these people together? There's men, there's women, there's slaves, there's tradespeople, there is uh, craftsmen and artisans, there's uh, Roman citizens and and barbarians. What is keeping them together? That was the big mystery. And so I wonder if in our churches, we could say, man, we have Republicans, Democrats, progressives, conservatives, Pro uh, women ordination, uh, traditional views, or um, as as is best as is best said, uh, complementarian views on on uh, men and women. You have people with a particular view on human sexuality. You have with other people uh, with another view on human sexuality, and yet somehow, mysteriously, we are kept together. Yeah, yeah. and that's that's what Jesus says. He says that. They will know you mm. are my disciples by your love, mm. right? How you love each other. And yet, in s- many times, to the detriment of the mission of Christ, instead of being known by our love, we have brought the separations and divisions that exist outside of the church mm. into the church and allowed. I remember I, I went to um, the called conference, the NAD pastors mm-hmm. conference uh, last summer and uh, went to a presentation that said, that uh, coming out of COVID, people began to choose what faith community they, they join based on um, the church's response to two questions, the pandemic and um, the issues about race mm-hmm. that, that divided our nations. So people chose their churches based on how they did or they didn't respond mm. to those two issues. And I found that so sad. Mm. Because I know those things were important. I do. I'm not, I'm not lowering the, the importance of any of those things. But if there's any place where people who had disagreements should be able to come together and have a relationship to support each other and have conversations about differences, it should be mm-hmm. the church. Mm-hmm. Because that is the mystery. Mm-hmm. That's the miracle of the gospel. Mm-hmm. And if we can't experience that, we've lost so much. I'm reminded of, I was just talking to Zach, our, our producer, uh, about um, a quote that I read um, earlier uh, uh, this today from Henry Nouwen's book, mm. uh, Discernment. And I'm going to mangle it 
So this is my paraphrase of what he said. He said, friendship is the journey of learning to forgive each other for not being Christ. Mm. And that was so powerful to me because, I mean, that's it. If we can't be friends to each with each other, unless we're constantly forgiving each other for not living up to being Christ, because none of us live up to that. That's, that's, oh man, that is so, so beautiful and so life affirming. I remember in the pandemic, um, there was all this other stuff, right, in, in our country. Uh, there was the Black Lives Matter movement. Uh, there was then a, a wave of um, attack on, on Asian Americans. Mm -hmm. And I remember being so oblivious to that. Um, and I remember just reaching out to you and saying, hey, how are you doing? And it, it wasn't because I had any particular agenda. It was simply, a, you know, hey, this is a community that, that I know uh, one of my colleagues lives in and is hurting by. Same, we did the same thing with, uh, with our brother Adrian uh, when, when, we had, when we had the Black Lives Matter thing. And I think at bare minimum, what we were able to do is we were able to say, I don't get it. I don't understand what life is mm -hmm. in your skin, mm -hmm. but I know you mm. and you matter to me. Yes. And the fact that churches are able to do or, or ought to be able to at least do that, I don't understand. And I might not agree with your perspective on a particular thing, but I know you. Mm -hmm. um, I, I'm just and I might get in a little bit of hot water, but, you know, you open the door to race. So I'll jump in. I'll jump into to that door. I love our anthem community, Jelly. And the reason why our, I love our anthem community is I see committed people that are trying to figure out their spirituality that have different views on sexuality than I do. Mm. Now, I'm not going to talk about human sexuality, but I am going to say that has made me much more tolerant. Mm. I see them there and I say, I don't know what it's life like to live with you. I might not agree with everything you believe, but I know you mm -hmm. and you matter to me. And in a church, friends, in a world that is so, so difficult to live in, whether it's race, gender, sexuality, social status, isn't the church mm -hmm. supposed to be a safe space for us to say, don't understand, might not agree with you, but you matter to me. Yeah, that seems to be the bare minimum of what we should mm -hmm. do, is to be able to communicate to people that we don't understand that we don't always agree with that we can still say you are a child of mm -hmm. you are a part of the household of god just like i am mm -hmm. and in this household there are no labels mm -hmm. except one child of god mm, that is so powerfully stated joey I'll, i'm gonna ask you to pray but before we do that i kind of want to finish with how i think paul would finish this conversation I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with the power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the world Lord's people to grasp how wide and how long and high and deep 
is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be fulfilled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Amen. Let's pray. Our good and gracious God, our God who has broken down every wall, the walls that were created by sin, the walls that we erect and we strengthen every day that separate each us from each other. Lord, you, you've come. You've come to break down every single one of those walls and you've asked us, your followers, to follow you in that process, to join you in the work of smashing down the walls that separate us so that we can just love and care for each other, care for people who we don't understand, that we don't always agree with, but that we know we can love anyway. Help us to follow in your steps is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. So dear friends, maybe maybe, and just maybe we can switch uh, the phrase we use, that phrase where we say God loves the sin sinner but hates the sin. Maybe we can shift that for God loves you. We're here to listen. Have a great rest of the weekend, and we'll see you next Sabbath. Mm-hmm.